0: going on something new is happening in the family even other children recognize that and and if and if none of us had any books on the topic if there was no education that was presented to us if if there was no teaching that was passed down from generation to generation to generation regarding childbirth it wouldn't take very long that first-hand experience would teach us some truths about birth. It doesn't take very long. Uh, and the Jews, they not only were, were recipients of this common grace that, that all man, mankind are given, that all nations have, not only were they recipients of this general revelation, but they were also recipients of specific revelation. For God has not left us without teaching, He's not left us without instructors. He's not left us even without the written word. And the Jews had the Old Testament scriptures. Which speak. And gave them divine insight. Into this event of childbirth. It's written into the Pentateuch. It is embedded within the Psalms. And it's referenced by the prophets. Such as we see here. Uh, And this all about this this uh, activity, this event, this uh, expectation, this concept, this ordinance of God, of conception, of reproduction, and of labor and delivery. All of that set forth here for us. Now, when when the Jews would approach the Old Testament scriptures and consider this this event of childbirth, and they, and they read the Hebrew word, Yalad, they're, they're, they're going to be immediately bombarded with 497 uses in the Old Testament. Almost 500 times this word is used. Uh, it's used in reference, you're going to be surprised, it's used in reference to male and to female. It's used in reference to, to man uh, mankind. It's used in reference to animals, uh, and even the earth is spoken of sometimes as giving birth. Um, but but whether it's literal, whether it whether it's metaphoric, uh, the language and the contextual usage of this word yalad, childbirth um, begat bear. Born, bearing, delivering, bringing forth, brought forth, labor, travail. This word, it it is always, always referring to the birthing process. Be it conception, be it pregnancy, be it delivery, be it uh, infancy, and even a process of maturation. It's always used in that context. Um. So much so that, that, that it's easily understood as the word is used. Now, when you and I, we, when we think about childbirth, what comes to our minds? Several things, probably, and for each one of us, different things. Um, for some, pain is up front and center. That may be the first thing that they think about. That may be the only thing you can think about for a while. Uh, apprehension might be another thought. You just, you know, it's 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 eating you up. It's you're consumed with it. You're it's you're apprehensive about it. You know, uncertainty as to time, as to uh, progression of labor, that may be in your mind. Um, for some, fear or worry might be present when we consider this event of childbirth. Um, for those of you who are historically farther removed from this event, uh, some other, other words might come to mind, other feelings might, might come into your mind, that of, of joy, that of excitement, that of celebration. Um, these are all memories and feelings that we, that we associate with this event, this event of childbirth. And, um, and they're all to be expected. They're all normal because childbirth well it's an emotionally charged event it's a physically taxing event it's a it's a mentally challenging event and it can even be a spiritual event because there's truths taught in this reality in this event of childbirth well our text beginning in verse 9 it opens with a question of Micah or, or of God, to his, to his audience, to his readers, to the nation. He says, Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? It's a rhetorical question. It, it is, in essence, this question that's presented here, it is, in essence, the question, So what? What? And, and this question is actually presented uh, rhetorically as an answer to the previous eight verses. Um, now, we see here in verse 9, this, this word now, this question, this, this opening to the question, is, is a response to God's promise, to the promises given the, verse, the first uh, eight verses previous. It's a response to God's promise. In the face of of pending destruction by the Assyrian army, God just gave, through through the prophet Micah, this magnificent, this unbelievable promise of an unshakable kingdom, of an unprecedented peace, of an unparalleled time of restoration. And in the face of the, the omnipotence of Almighty God, the infallibility and the omniscience of Almighty God, in the face of these attributes, these character traits, this person of who God is, what is an army? What's an army to an omnipotent God? What is mortal man to an eternal God? Where and what is man's wisdom in the face of the omniscience of God? So, surely we can declare with the psalmists here that, that though a host encamped against me, yet in this I will be confident. I will be confident even in the face of an army. Surely we can declare with the Apostle Paul that, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? This word now, as it is presented here in verse 9, it's a return to contemporary events. Remember, he stepped away from the from the telescope and in looking into the far distant future in this unshakable kingdom, this unparalleled time of peace. He's, he's, he stepped away and now he, he's back to now, to the here and to the now, and that which is right around the corner. It's a return to contemporary events. And... Um, so now the conversation is to, to turns to that which is hand. And nationally speaking, Judah is crying. She's in pain. She's in pain uh, because there is this army that's surrounding her, 185,000 strong. It's surrounding her. And this army desires to remove Judah's sovereignty and desires, as it were, to remove her God. Who are the gods of these other nations? They haven't stood up against me. Why do you think your God is going to be able to do anything else? This, this, this army wants to remove the God of, of Judah. And it's precisely because of these contemporary events that, and these, these feelings, these questions, that God gives this analogous message of childbirth. It's precisely because of the temp- contemporary events. And the question asks about, is the king not among you? Has your counselor perished? This question, it's not so much about King Hezekiah, and his tears, and his and his questioning, and his lack of knowledge about, what do I do here? You know, he falls on his face. It's not so much about King Hezekiah. It, is, it isn't even so much later on about, King Zedekiah in being removed from the nation and shipped off to Babylon. It's not so much about even King Zedekiah in a hundred years or so. But rather, the questions posed in verse 9, this, why do you cry out loudly? This, is there no king among you? They are relating to Judah's thoughts about her God. Listen, the reason Judah is is in such fear, the reason that she's in such anxiety, in such apprehension and pain, and in a place of uncertainty, is because she has forgotten that God is her king. She's forgotten that. She's forgotten that God is her wonderful counselor. Now, God has so designed everything so as to inextricably weave Spiritual truth into physical reality. It's amazing. It's a mystery. We, we sang about that in the song. How can the immortal die? God has, has woven it into the fabric. And, and, it, and this truth, it ought not to scare us. Especially as we consider it in, in the context and in the realm of the fall of Sin. But rather, this, this truth of the, of the weaving of spiritual reality into physical reality, of the invisible into the visible, that ought to excite us because it magnifies the wisdom of God. Absolutely magnifies it. Who else can do this? It shows and, and displays such great power, such wonderful, amazing artistic ability. Who can do this? And it gives us a small glimpse into His sovereignty. It gives us a small glimpse at His beauty. Now, verse 9, it's a spiritual perspective to an earthly crisis. You know, the God of, of Judah, the God of Israel, He's not like the gods of the other nations. He isn't dependent upon Judah's status and position as a people, as a nation state, as a kingdom, in order to be in charge. See, God isn't dependent upon the nation of Israel in order for Him to be God. No, not at all. Yet, yet Judah's actions here, her, her fears, her, her, her tears, her anxiety, her actions here reveal that not only is she feeling the current weight of, Of this crisis. Not only is she feeling this weight. Of the magnitude of her impending national suffering. She sees it coming. But Judah. Is unable to see her God. She's blinded. She can only see one dimensional. As it were. And that is the true crisis. That's the true crisis. She's blind to everything. But the pain. Everything but the discomfort. And I want to, to briefly show you a New Testament parallel here. Hold your finger in Micah, and we're gonna just quickly look at Mark chapter five. Mark chapter five, verse thirty-nine. And while we can't go into the uh, to the beautiful specifics here <clears throat> in Mark five, uh, the short of the story is this Jesus, he's on his way to to heal the daughter of this synagogue official. This daughter of Jairus uh, is mentioned to us in verse 22. He's on his way there, but by the time he arrives, the girl's dead. She's died. And um, let's read verse 39. And entering in, that's in coming into the home, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Now, from all appearances, indeed, even in reality, this little girl, this only child of this man, she's lost her life. It seems as if Christ was too late. If he, he just didn't get there in time. If that woman hadn't stopped Him, He would have made it in time. From all appearances, that seems to be the feeling. But, but notice that Jesus said, she's only asleep. Why are you crying? She's only asleep. She's not dead. And then he proceeds to raise her back to life. So how does this relate to our passage in Micah? Well, It's, it, it's quite simple. I want you to think of it in reverse here. Think of verses 1 through 8 of Micah 4 and also the last half of, of verse 10 in Micah 4. Think of that as the resurrected girl. She's alive. She's got new life. And think of uh, chapter 3, verse 12. This Zion being plowed as a field, Jerusalem becoming a heap of ruins. Think of verses 9 through the first part of 10 as the death of the girl. She's dead. She's dying. See, from the vantage point of man, the prophet is saying here that the nation of Judah is indeed going to perish. She's going to die. She is terribly sick. And that is her agony. That is her travail. That's her laboring, her suffering. That's her pain. Is the death of her, of her nation. But from the divine perspective, from up high looking down, Micah, along along with Jesus, is saying to the Jews, Look, she's not dead. She's just asleep. She's just asleep. So when Jesus, when he takes this girl, his daughter, when he takes her by the hand and says to her, Little girl, I say to you, get up. That's what we're looking at when we read verse 10b of Micah 4. He's saying, Get up, little girl. Wake up. In other words, Judah's dying, her nation's dying, and she's going to die but the sickness of which she is dying will not result in her ultimate death. That's the parallel. So to what then are these verses re- referring? Verses 9 and 10 specifically. Well, the kingdom of Judah and Israel here is not yet in its mature form. It's not yet in its full form. It's only embryonic, as in the womb as it were. And, and the reality is true, um, not only in Micah's day, but frankly, folks, it's still true. It's still true, even down to this very day, Scripture says. The nation of Israel is not now, nor ever was, God's kingdom in totality. In total. But in order for the fullness of, In order for the fullness of the kingdom of God to come, there must of necessity first come to Israel pain. There must first come labor, writhing and suffering and expulsion. In other words, unless she, Israel, is born again, she cannot see the kingdom of God. Micah here is likening The process of natural birth to Israel's spiritual rebirth. Let's unpack verses 9 and 10 a little bit more. Verse 9 pictures for us the unbelieving emotional state in which Judah is living. Do you see that? She's crying, she's in agony, she's gripped by the agony. It's her unbelieving emotional state. She's just received this this grand promise of restoration and of God ruling and of of unparalleled peace, of of prosperity and praise, yet yet she wails here. She's writhing. She's wallowing in it. She's wallowing in unbelief. She weeps for her lack of leadership. No king among you? She's wallowing in self-pity here at her apparent loss of everything. Zion's going to be plowed. Jerusalem's becoming a heap of ruins. She's, She's losing even her identity. The temple, the capital, her king. She's mourning this. And she's writhing in her coming pain and displacement and discomfort. She's looking ahead and seeing it, and she's feeling sorry for herself. It's, a, it's an, a, an unbelieving emotional state. Now, verse 9 also pictures for us an unbelieving mental state of the nation of Judah. The nation's very fickle. She's very confused. She's willing to accept almost any teaching that comes down the pike. As long as it doesn't require her to repent. She's going to accept anything. As, with, as long as it doesn't have that stipulation. On the one hand, um, we see in, in 3.11, she asks this question. Hey, is not the Lord in our midst? We're unstoppable. She's got a profession of faith. The Lord's in our midst. But on the other hand, by her actions of, of verse 9, it's as if she believes that, that because the nation's crumbling, because she's experiencing difficulty, then, then God's weak, God's sick, or maybe, maybe God has died altogether. She's got no possession of faith. So verse 9 pictures for us the unbelieving mental state of Judah. Verse 10, it pictures for us the unbelieving physical state of Judah. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. In her trip to the L&D department, Israel is going to be expelled. She's going to be rejected. She's going to be captured. She's going to be enslaved. Judah is leaving her home. And she's going to, to, to a place that's unknown to her. She's leaving her place of comfort and going to a place of discomfort. She's leaving a familiar place and going to an unfamiliar place. From a place of comfort to a place of hardship. Hardship. She's going to a place from which she will need to be rescued and to a person from whom she needs to be redeemed. That's where she's going. To enslavement of sorts. From a place of gathered plenty. We've got stores. We've got stockpiles. We've got everything that we need here at home. To a place of scattered... Just survival you 're going to dwell in the field that 's where she 's going here and city you 're going to go out now, go out of the city and it's and it 's a mark not of, of um, just of nation of a nation, not of just of a place of security but a place of community, a place of hey we 're all together we we have the same. Experiences, we have the same culture of relationship. It's it's a feeling, it's a concept of living together, of, of of a common purpose, common drive. She's leaving that though. And she's gonna dwell in the field which is indicative of mere survival, just every man for himself. So the unbelieving physical state of Judah. Verse 10 also pictures the unbelieving spiritual state of Judah. While the nation is currently facing Assyria, Babylon is mainly expressed here. Explicitly expressed here. It doesn't say you're going to go to Assyria. It says you're going to go to Babylon. This is the first mention of Babylon. And and we could go into great depths about that. But while uh, Babylon is literally being spoken of, and we know that, From the historical account. We know that from the scriptural account. Babylon is literally being mentioned. But Babylon is also representative of the heart of the kingdom of Satan. And she's going to Babylon. She's going to the heart of the kingdom of Satan. Because Satan owns her, in a sense. She's unbelieving. So not only were the inhabitants of Judah to actually be deported to Babylon, but but by their unbelieving actions, by their unbelieving hearts, by by their words, by their disobedience to the true king, she is showing that she is choosing to live in the city of Babylon because she's disobedient. To her true king. She's saying. No. I don't want your rules. I want those rules. I want to live over there. This. is She's going to this place. That is the replacement city of God. The city where you can be God. I want to go to Babylon. The nation of Israel. By their continued rejection. Of Jesus as the Christ. Is Still. Metaphorically, in Babylon, she's still there. Now, it is from this state of unbelief, unbelieving emotional state, unbelieving mental state, unbelieving physical state, unbelieving spiritual state, it is from this state of unbelief, wherein she will be saved. She's going to be saved from this unbelief. She's an emotional wreck. She's a mental basket case. She is a physical mess and a spiritual ruin. On every level, there's unbelief. Judah truly is totally depraved. But the Lord promises that his restoration is greater even than the depths of her depravity. He promises that. For even in the center of the kingdom of the enemy, the heart of it, the very center of it, he is able to reach out and redeem his people from Babylon. Even as Jacob progresses in his sin and moves closer and closer to his time of distress... Even as Jacob is writhing and laboring and experiencing the curse, experiencing sin, even this process the Lord uses and will use to bring her to a state of righteousness, to her Messiah. In order to what? To set her affections right. To restore her reason. To lift up her countenance. And to make her worship pure. The true king, the true God of Israel, is using this process of rejection and rebellion and sin in all its states, in its total depravity nature like to bring her to her Messiah. And the Apostle Peter reveals to us a little bit of how this mystery unfolds, of how God uses man's sin within His grand plan. And you're familiar with it. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2 when he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here is the mystery of how God uses my sin, your sin, Israel's sin, to accomplish His grand purpose, His great salvation. Somehow He does it. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, even as physical birth goes through a process, yet it is still marked and counted by a particular moment in time and space, so also spiritual birth goes. For most of us, most of us probably in this room here, especially if we are, have been born into Christian homes where the Word of God is regularly preached, regularly taught, where the person of Christ and His work is regularly set forward. For most of us, there's a process leading to our conversion. Now, Scripture actually does give us an example of one born again, as it were, via an emergency C-section due to an impending miscarriage. Or actually, the language is more abortive in nature. It's as if God reached down to to a baby who was being aborted and says, no, you're going to live. And that's the Apostle Paul. He says, one born an an untimely birth. And that's its real meaning. It's more abortive in nature. So Scripture gives us one who is just dramatically turned around that happens but for the majority of people it's like a process it's like a process there's usually a gradual development of internal pressures intentions almost imperceptible changes where where one day these changes have grown and developed and suddenly you realize things are different things are different you aren't comfortable anymore Maybe your lower back hurts. Maybe your feet are swelling. Maybe, hey, my, my skirt, my pants aren't fitting quite as they used to. Things are different. Activities that were once conducted without second thought now begin to cause you to pause or slow down. Or maybe they even give you mental anguish here. Maybe you're being weighed down with guilt. Maybe you're being even convicted by actions that once you didn't think about. You might attempt to ignore it. I don't, it'll go away. I'm just making this up. Maybe you attempt to drown it. Maybe you attempt to suffocate it, to numb the pain. How many people out there are attempting to numb the pain of sin with alcohol, with drugs, with illicit activities? With silent activities. How many people are attempting to drown out the pain? You might even put yourself in a different place. You might physically move. You might just mentally check out. In an attempt to remove the pain. You may seek for answers to the nagging questions that just won't go away. It's gnawing at you. And you're seeking for answers. And you're going to look for it in education. Solomon, I sought for wisdom. Maybe you're going to seek for it in work. I built for myself everything I could possibly think of. You seek for it in your occupation. Maybe you say, I'm going to seek for it in in entertainment. I denied nothing. Let me have all the wine. Let me have all the women. Maybe you seek for it in entertainment to these nagging questions, that which is gnawing you. What's going on here? Because nothing helps. The pain doesn't go away, it won't end. You are regularly in discomfort because that thing within you keeps growing. It's getting larger and larger until now discomfort becomes pain. What's going on? Active labor is beginning. Agony is gripping you like a woman in childbirth. Active labor is beginning. The recognition of the horror of your sin is beginning to dawn on you. It is weighing you down. There's mental sorrow. There's an emotional pain of being exposed, of having everything stripped away, and you're lying there naked. You're completely vulnerable. Yet, the more you strive against the pain, the more it hurts. You make further attempts to to reposition yourself. She's writhing. She's trying to escape the pain. Trying to reposition. To relieve the pain. To relieve the pressure. There's mounting desires for it to just go away. For it to be over. There's a great need of relief. When will the pressure let up? But the fear of the unknown, the unwillingness to succumb to this trial, the stubbornness and the failure to simply stop resisting, it only increases your agony and the birth pangs. You look to someone to guide you through this event. And though there may be others around you, only you can walk this road. Only you can walk it. And at this juncture, at this intersection, when you reach this point, there's only two options. Because the process never ends in constant tension. There's only two options. Only two roads. You either choose to harden yourself to the pain. You allow yourself to become calloused to the working of the Holy Spirit You harden yourself in order to not feel the pain anymore. In order to not bear the weight of your sin. Think of the parable of the soils with it thrown out and it springs up, but as soon as the sun comes out, done. There's no root. Or, in keeping with this birth imagery, you may liken it to an abortion where you are Are willingly saying, I want no part of the image of God. All I want is my pleasure and my glory. I'm going to kill it. Now, if you choose this road, if you choose this first path, God may patiently, graciously, lovingly lead you back to this intersection again. Or he may not. But there's another path. That's the first option. What's the second one? The second road that you can walk, that you can take, is going to hurt more. You're going to feel the pain. You're going to be uncomfortable. There's no escape from the weight of this sin the weight grows heavier and heavier just like the child in the womb grows heavier and heavier to the mother. In choosing this path, you are submitting to the pain. You are saying, I'm going to endure the labor and you're going to let God rescue you from this dark prison of a womb in which you find yourself. You're going to allow yourself to be birthed. And you're going to let God be the deliverer. Don't fear the pain. As my wife said, learn to relax into the pain. Don't fear it. Accept it. Don't fear the enemy hordes that's surrounding you, this army. Don't fear them. Deliverance is just on the other side. Deliverance is at hand. That one angel is about to slay this whole army. Don't fear. The psalmist says to us, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy is coming. Submit to the Lordship of Christ. He is your king. Listen to the calling of the Spirit of God. He is your counselor. I plead with you. Fear God. Don't fear the pain. Don't fear the enemy. Fear God. You must be born again. And if you've received knowledge of this truth, the truth that you're a sinner the truth that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and you continue to sin willfully, if you have tasted of the good Word of God, and you fall away from that truth, you are again crucifying the Son of God. You're scorning Him. You're spitting on Him. You're regarding His poured out precious blood as unclean, and you're treading in it. You're insulting the spirit of grace. Be careful, be careful that you not reject the gift of repentance. Do not follow in the footsteps of national Israel. Learn from her idolatry. Learn from her hard-heartedness. Learn from her arrogance. Learn from her captivity. From Judah's perspective, she's in a crisis here. Her nation's suffering defeat. Her leaders are incompetent. Her God just appears to be dead. But from a heavenly vantage point, Judah's present predicament actually isn't a crisis. Because the Lord still sits as King. How often do you and I get worked up as if Christ is still dead? Now, if Christ is not raised, if Jesus is not your king, then truly you are in a crisis. Because in that case, in either of those cases, our faith is worthless and we're still dead in our sins. And we're destined for captivity and death if Christ doesn't sit as king, if Christ isn't raised. But Judah's predicament is not a crisis. Why? Why? Because King Jesus says you will be rescued. The Lord will redeem you. And if you aren't saved, your current status doesn't have to be a crisis. Why? Because again, it goes back to the promise of Jesus. He says, whoever believes in him shall not perish shall not. It's a promise. It doesn't have to be a crisis. Listen, the faith, that listen to what John Piper says. He says the faith that justifies is not the faith that says Jesus died for your sins and rose again. No. It is banking your hope on the promises that were purchased when Jesus died for your sins and rose again. You're trusting in the promise of God. And the question, again, all boils down to, do you believe? Do you believe? It was this question that was posed to Adam and Eve. You're going to believe God or you're going to believe the serpent? This question was posed to Hezekiah in the face of Sennacherib. Are you going to seek assistance from other nations or are you going to seek my face? And this question is being asked of you right now. Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Micah says, now. Why do you cry out loudly? Why are you striving against the pain? Turn your eyes now to verses 11 and 12. Well, on the other side of restoration, a threat appears. And we're going to run through this faster, so just hold on. Who are these many nations? Many nations have been assembled against you. When does this happen? Does this happen? Has this happened? Is it speaking of Assyria? Is it speaking of Babylon? Is it speaking of mercenaries from both? Is it speaking of other nations? Well, historically speaking, the period that's being referenced here... Is, is usually um, usually pointed towards the intertest, excuse me, the intertestamental period. And, but there's debate among commentators. Um, most place it there, but, um, but some would, would say, no, it's, it's immediately post-exile in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, some others would still point to, to Roman dominance at the time of Christ, their occupation. And then, of course, there's, there's yet, the yet future battle in the plain of Megiddo, in the battle of Armageddon. Is that being considered here? Is, is there a near term? Is there a far term fulfillment? Is there a literal fulfillment? Is there a spiritual? What are the, who, who are these many, many nations? And I, I, I tend to think that, as most prophecies have a near and a far fulfillment, I think this one likely does as well. And as many truths have spiritual and and physical elements, this one probably does too. But in short, today I'm just going to punt on this issue. And and here's some scriptures for you to consider. Psalm 2, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14, um, Ezekiel 38, Luke chapter 21. And um, Revelation chapter 16 and 19. You, you go read these if you want them. Again, come to me afterwards. I'm going to punt there. But however, due to time, there is a spiritual truth, though, that we, that we need to see here, that we can look at and be encouraged by. Contextually, verses 11 and 12, Judah's now back in her land, having been restored. She's back from captivity, back from Babylon. Yet her enemies absolutely hate her presence there. They want her gone. They liked her better when she was in captivity. They want her gone. They want to destroy her once for all. And they're murderers and they desire to witness her murder. They want her dead. They have, as what they have their desire as what Goliath had as his desire. They're, they're mocking God. They're profaning His name. They're gloating over Zion. We're bringing this home to you and me. When the Lord saves a man, that man immediately draws the attention and the ire of the enemies of God. Oh, it stirs them up. It gets them angry. And even from time to time, even from the God of this world himself, we have an example of that, don't we? So we're exhorted. To be of sober spirit. Why? Be on the alert. Be on the alert because your enemy, your adversary, the devil, he's prowling around like a roaring lion and he's seeking who he can devour. There's occasions in which Satan has personally attacked people. Job. There's occasions in the scripture that Satan demanded permission to sift someone like wheat. Peter. So Satan's active in this as well as the God of this world. Uh, We're instructed that the demonic beings are more powerful than people, greater in might and power. Yet knowing all this, in the face of all this, we are told, resist him. Resist him. He will flee. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Jesus says, I've prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world, he says. Have you been given a great spiritual victory? Praise the Lord. Have you been delivered? Praise the Lord. Polish your shield. Sharpen your sword. Worship God on Sunday and prepare for war on Monday or Sunday evening. Okay? But praise the Lord. Well, there's a further comfort that we can take from these two verses because even as the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, and even as there's things to which angels long to look, um, so it is that the unregenerate does not recognize that they are being led to the slaughter. Hmm. You ever considered that? They think they've got the upper hand. They think they know what's going on. They think they've got the power. They think they're the ones in the know. No. The fact of the matter is, God is in control. He defends His children. He intercedes for His followers. (coughs) And He not only knows the schemes of His enemies, but He uses their schemes against them. Brothers and sisters, what a God we serve here. They don't understand his purpose. Do you see that? He's gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Wow. But it's not over. There's more. Do you see verse 13? God tells us that that he allows, not only does he allow us to be brought into the army, but he, he puts us into the fight intentionally. He intentionally puts us in the fight. Those who intend to sift will themselves be uh, sifted. Those who came to thresh are going to be threshed. They're going to be crushed. And do you see the great irony here? That, that God takes this wretched, oppressed soul and not only redeems him, not only gives him white robes, clean clothes, but he fully equips him and outfits him with an entire suit of armor. He gives him the, uh, the training necessary to fight. And he deploys him on the battlefield so that he can take more ground and gain more glory for him and for his name. And there's another promise of God here. He says, your horn I will make iron, your hoofs I will make as bronze. Listen, when it comes to metal versus meat, metal wins every time. We know that. Our fingers have been mashed. We've got nails stuck in our flesh. We know metal wins. God gives to us the most advanced, most powerful weaponry on the battlefield. We wield the gospel. We wield the power of God Himself. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, we win the fight. We receive the victor's crown. We inherit the gifts of God. We inherit the earth. And then, as true disciples of Jesus Christ, we cast them back to Him even as Jesus Himself hands over the kingdom back to the Father. He gives us glory and we return it to Him. We return it to Him. Now here at the conclusion, I want to do something as a visual to teach us another truth. I want us to see that as believers, we're all on the same path. As believers... We're all on the same path. We're all on the same road to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're headed to the same person. Some may arrive at the destination sooner than others. But if you're on the path, you're going to get to Him. Now, here's what I'd like to do. Out of, out of respect for the Word of God, and maybe in order to wake us up a little bit, <clears throat> And to show that God leads <clears throat> different individuals uh, in, different, in different ways to the same person. And, and kids, you're going to like this. So get ready, kids. Okay, What is what I want to do? If you're able, not all of you are, I may not be able, and that's okay. But if you're able, I want you to, while staying seated, take your Bibles or your digital app, you cheaters, and, and, and turn, turn to the book of Romans, to one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. It's while staying seated. When you get to Romans 8, keep it open and stand up. And, I, and go ahead and do this. Don't turn. Don't stand up unless you're there. All right. So why this visual drama, okay? To point to the fact that every one of us, <coughs> every one of us, has a different regeneration story. But every one of us has the same Christ. And to point to the fact that it may take some of us longer to get there, but we're all going to get there. If you're in Christ, then then you're going to get to the emotionally moving, mentally astounding, physically challenging, and spiritually life-giving Christ that's found and proclaimed in Romans chapter 8. Now... Let me get there. Those who are first shall be last, right? I want to read this whole chapter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. "...to those who were called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestinated, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things?" If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Well, I lost my place, forgive me. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Now to Him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ be glory forever, And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We're dismissed.